When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. On today's show, I have the privilege of welcoming two young writers whose debut novellas promise many delights to follow. Rebecca von Lair's How to Adjust to the Dark weaves together prose narrative, literary theory, and original poetry. It's a braided form that mirrors the self-interrogation that the protagonist Charlotte conducts in an attempt to understand how critical moments from her past and present converge into something like identity. Shannon McLeod's Whimsy introduces us to her character of the same name, a seventh-grade teacher who's still recovering emotionally and physically from the terrible accident that killed her college roommate and left Whimsy disfigured. The two novellas speak to each other in provoking ways. They ask similar questions about what a woman is allowed to desire from her intimate partnerships and from a world that too often dismisses them. They demand from their readers with much different formal engines, not so much empathy as recognition, and the understanding that our interaction with others often tests our openness to the idea of the communal. Both Rebecca and Shannon offer us narrative imaginations that are dissatisfied with simple existence, and they take us inside their intellectual machinations as they imagine something better, or at least different, from what they have been dealt. Rebecca von Lair's writing appears in Triquarterly Review, Joyland, Columbia Journal, The Florida Review, Salamander, Hobart, Monkey Bicycle, and Electric Literature. She holds a PhD in English from Brown University. Shannon McLeod is the author of the essay chapbook, Pathetic, from Etchings Press, and her writings have appeared in Tin House, Prairie Schooner, Hobart, and Smoke Long Quarterly. She lives in Virginia, where she teaches high school English. Welcome, Shannon and Rebecca. Hi. 
Hi, thanks so much for having us, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to start off and talk about your your shared genre. Um, the novella is, in some senses, kind of a lost art, at least in the publishing world. When we do see them, they're often packaged within a collection of short stories as the longer eponymous story. Um, would you both address your reasons for wanting to work in this form, whether that was in intentional or just something that came more organically? And did you have any trepidation about the readership for novellas? Um, well, for me, I did not set out to write a novella. I actually set out for Whimsy to be a linked short story collection. Um, and I didn't quite know what the length would be, but I knew the storyline that I um, was working toward and the themes. And it just turned out to be that length. I did have some trepidation because as I was originally reaching out to agents and having them read the book time and time again, they all said, you know, can you make this into a novel? Novellas are really, really hard to sell. <laughs> and I and I tried. I tried to add some more um, stories or scenes and it just wasn't quite working. I have always been a fan of novellas and I think that there's something really special to a brief book and they oftentimes just feel very intimate, uh, feel like a slice of life. And I noticed that a lot of them have some sort of love story element, which mine does. So it just ended up feeling right for my story. And even though it, it, it is tough to sell a novella, I'm really happy with the fact that it came out with a small press, long day press, because they just, they gave it a lot of love. And I think readers of small press books are really fantastic. Um, and it's it's ended up a, a happy ending, I think. And Rebecca? It's such an interesting question for me because for a long time, my favorite novels have been very short. Uh, so Muriel Sparks, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody is something that I read at a very young age that I absolutely loved. And That's even an now, book. <laughs> so good, right? Um, something like Sarah Moss's Ghost Wall is mm. incredibly short and mm -hmm. tiny. And, and actually another book that you recommended to me, Chris Assembly. Um, and these are called novels, despite the fact that they are novella length, one might say. Uh, I also have been interested in novels in verse for a long time. So something like um, Anne Carson's Autobiography of Red probably when it, you take out all of the white space, I'm guessing that the word count might be really similar to my book or Shannon's book. So what the kind of usefulness of novella as a term actually has, I think for me was clarified a little bit um, in talking to Shannon about her book and kind of like the white space that appears between the stories in the novella or the idea that the work that it does um, to encompass a life is that it chooses one through thread in the world that it's exploring, rather than feeling like it needs to expand on every relationship or um, kind of work towards a fuller representation of the character's reality over the course of time that it covers. And for me, that was something that ultimately helped me take what I thought was a novel and boil it down to the elements that were most related to the central questions that I was looking at about poetry and unrequited love and kind of get rid of all of the stuff that I didn't need to communicate the main story. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like that idea of a kind of uh, something broken down to its elements, um, an elemental novel. And novella is funny because it 
it, you know, I guess there is a traditional definition that has to do with with page count, um, but it I I think it defies that. And the way that each of you are are speaking about it helps me see how uh, how broadly we could think about it as a as a form. I'm thinking about novels in in verse. Rebecca, have you read Golden Gate by Vikram Seth? I actually have not. I think it's just one of the most incredible experiments with the idea that verse can do things in a novelistic form. And I'm just always looking to uh, to recommend it to folks. It's not um, particularly short, but it is all entirely in sonnet form. Um, and it's about a group of a group of young men uh, in the 1980s living in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic. But it's it's a wonderful and intense uh, novel in verse. Going on my TV red list. Sorry for the crosstalk. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Rebecca, how to adjust to the dark is is really a treasure box of forms. Um, the protagonist Charlotte uses literary theory and her own poetry as a way to understand her identity as an expression of past and present events in her life. To quote her, poetry was perhaps a good anchor for creating a sense of self, the belief that I was someone with power and purpose. You quote Ben Lerner's controversial position that poetry is embarrassing to the reader and the writer. And indeed, Charlotte is often embarrassed by her poetry. How did you navigate wanting to include verse that would revisit moments of love and desire in her life with the fear that poetry might disrupt the narrative for the reader or for you, for that matter? I think that one thing that I had going for me is that I didn't know what I was doing. So that is a big advantage (laughs) when writing a cross-genre book um, that I didn't have an outline and I had pretty much never written um, literary prose before, uh, just poetry and literary criticism. So I, as I kind of moved forward in the project, I found that the thing that was actually harder for me to grapple with and analyze was the close reading of the poems in original drafts. I had spent Mm. much, much longer um, kind of untangling them and unraveling them and ultimately learned that readers um, don't like that and feel disconnected (laughs) from it. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Um, The poetry itself, I think that I ultimately decided I will write this in a way where you almost don't have to read the poems because I know that some people can't or won't. <laughs> so they they serve as textual artifacts that the, the text is definitely responding to um, and drawing out. But I think that hopefully kind of like a cursory read rather than a deep engagement with the poem can keep you running through the narrative. And my hope is that for readers who are interested, that that change in the texture of reading from the kind of faster progression of the narrative itself versus the attention that verse ideally gets creates a more engaging reading experience. Um, But yeah. That was certainly the case for me. And what I loved about it was that you use it 
in well perhaps in a in a more old-fashioned sense of literary criticism uh in in a way to explore the self rather than necessarily to explore something on a in a kind of mere formal way and so we get these incidents in charlotte's life and then they are then re-examined through uh initially a poetic creative um attempt to grapple with that uh, episode and then a re-narration of that creative attempt. And so it's this wonderful way to to see someone's line of thought happen, uh, but happen through these different forms. So I didn't find it distracting at all, nor did I find it particularly like the kind of literary criticism that I read. And so I, I liked it a lot. I, I, I thought quite a bit while reading uh, How to Adjust to the Dark of Mac uh, Mikhail Bakhtin's famous idea that the novel is the dominant genre because it can consume and contain all other genres. And you seem to be proving that true. Um, what happens to the theory and, and poetry when they come together inside your novella form? It's interesting that you talk about Bakhtin and that kind of quote or essay was at the beginning of my um, statement of purpose when I applied to graduate school and PhD oh, programs. Fascinating. <laughs> um, so that's something that I was thinking about years before I set out to write a novel. As for the role of theory in this book, it's a little bit complicated because I think that Charlotte's interpretation of these theoretical texts don't necessarily line up one-to-one -one with the way that I would um, interpret or explicate them now. And the way that she looks at them, she's looking for the um, utility of them in, in her life or the parts or fragments of them that speak to her. She's looking at them in, I would say, a more literary way rather than with a holistic understanding of what the theory means in the world and as part of the mm -hmm. philosophical mm -hmm. tradition that, for say, say, Foucault comes from. And I think that that is also like a beautiful and valid way that theory can be experienced um, rather than as something that is more, rather than something that is a one amongst many lenses that needs comparison to others to be evaluated, that it can be something that you have a more personal or direct experience with as with poetry. And mm -hmm. I think that that is how I see it coming up in the novel and would not, you know, kind of stand behind this reading of Foucault, perhaps, and say, okay, um, based on this, now we can also understand how to care for ourselves and live under late capitalism. That's a great explanation. Thank you. Shannon, um, whimsy is in, at least in part a story of disfigurement. And and I'm I'm using that broadly here. Whimsy yeah. herself, who might have the best name in 21st century fiction. <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna put a flag down for that. I think you I think you win. She has been disfigured in a tragic car accident that leaves her college roommate dead. The literal scars on her face cause her incredible anxiety and an uncertainty about her identity as split pre and post this accident. Mm -hmm. um, but it's clear that you want to engage with the idea of 
uh, identity itself being made of disfigurements, stitched together from pieces of relationships to family and intimates, and threaded through inevitably by our skewed sense of how we are perceived. Mm -hmm. What were you hoping to do with disfigurement in whimsy? I was hoping to convey the way that our self-perception distorts the way we experience reality and interact with others. Because I think that's something that I've been very aware of, um, at least in my adult life. But as I reflect on on my earlier years, I, I see how it was a theme in my life um, through adolescence as well. And I think that that's true for everyone um, to some extent, some more than others, that like you said, our experiences of um, different disfigurements, whether we're using that term literally or metaphorically, really change the way we see ourselves and in part how we behave in the world. So that's something that I've always been really interested in. And I think just being someone with low self-esteem and having particularly been dealing with um, self-esteem during the course of writing this novella was something that I was really interested in exploring in a way that I was conscious of, but I'm sure on unconscious levels as well. There's nothing like trying to get something published to really mess with your self-esteem <laughs> in, right? in permanent and unfortunate ways. Um, <laughs> I, I want to go back to something uh, Rebecca said uh, about the form of of your novel in particular, Shannon. The the these sort of separate chapters mm -hmm. that have these big white spaces here, almost mm -hmm. kind of a disfiguring of the narrative in the sense of it like causes this jarring pause to it, which seemed very in, in, intentional. And I, I mm -hmm. wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, the encounter with the divisions in, in the novella. Well, I think when I first started writing this book, I had written two previous novels that um, in my eyes kind of fell flat or sort of practice novels as um, some people deem them. <laughs> but I felt more comfortable writing short stories and I felt like I had to some extent sort of figured that out or felt some uh, comfort in that area. So when I first started writing this book, I started through the lens of, of short stories, just trying to craft individual scenes that had a narrative arc in and of themselves. But then I found it just kind of an interesting challenge for myself to find a way to build an overarching um, story arc. So that's what I was doing there. But um, as I was working on the initial stories, I found how important it was for that space to exist, um, because I think that it um, so much of this book is about the way we live recursively, we're re-experiencing our traumas, we're living in our memories and obsessions, especially for insecure people. So it, it would make sense to me to convey the story in a similar way, where we place more emphasis on certain moments in our lives and certain instances um, where we're thinking about them more. Um, so I tried to convey all of the stories that appear in Whimsy um, to reflect the sort of moments in her life that would really uh, stick the landing in terms of her own self-obsession and, um, mm -hmm. 
and obsessive uh, self-analysis. Yeah, and and it, it's funny that it at least in your mind started as as kind of separate stories, and mm. and you're trying to find an arc because it, the arc really feels natural to it. Mm. It does not feel um, divided, and in fact, by the end, um, I I felt a sort of murderous rage against uh, Rakesh, uh, the love interest, um, and I think that is because we have such a a natural sense of the arc of their relationship. Mm. But it's, you know, I, I find it so fascinating the way these ideas we have of um, the production of, of a story are, are often disconnected from what actually went on behind the scenes. Both of your works engage deeply with women's desires and their relationships to partners who often wish to shape and, and manipulate them. Could you both weigh in on how fiction deals with um, women disentangling themselves from the needs and desires of abusive or at least manipulative partners and how you were hoping to engage that in your own work? I, I think in a lot of ways, my my book is about this um, and especially about the idea of the the woman artist as um, the, the victim and her well of creative energy, in fact, coming sometimes from the pain of a romantic relationship. So I'm thinking of uh, Sylvia Plath or uh, Frida Kahlo, um, some of the most iconic female creators mm -hmm. that we have. And the way in which this um, story of, of being in a bad relationship seems like a creative engine that drives them forward. So I think that that was very much something I was consciously thinking about and what it means to tell a story of um, coming to make a self, um, coming to know the intention or purpose of one's art, and figuring out how to separate that from, from unhealthy romantic relationships and from that kind of manipulation. So in making that intervention, at the same time, it's very difficult to avoid um, rehearsing the trauma of the relationship or really shaping the narrative around that relationship. Um, and so I think that Shannon's book and the kind of episodic approach it takes where Rakesh actually doesn't appear in some of the chapters is one um, great way to explicate that self-exploration that's taking place alongside the relationship. Mm -hmm. And in mine, the way that I approached it was by um, kind of just trying to diminish the men in the novel um, to, to not to not give them names um, or many defining characteristics to make them more a, a structure than individual people so that we could see the narrator um, creating and responding to that structure rather than to a specific incident and figuring out what that structure meant to her and how it had shaped her and how she could move beyond it. Fascinating. And, and Shannon? That's really interesting what you say, Rebecca, about um, the creative process for a woman almost being like a lifeline or a way to defy uh, the way that others and particularly men are trying to manipulate them. Um, I think women, you know, are, are often infantilized by society, by men in their lives, especially older, but also romantic partners. And I think um, that's where creativity is really powerful, uh, like in the examples that Rebecca mentioned. Um, and that's something that I hadn't consciously thought a whole lot about from the character of Whimsy. Um, certainly, 
uh, because she's she's a dancer and um, her dance uh, is a way of using her body in a way that's expressive and feels health, healthy and empowering, which is uh, really the opposite of how she usually experiences her body. Um, but it's also a form of creative expression, which is a sort of way to rebel against um, the way that society infantilizes women and manipulates women. Um, I think, though, uh, perhaps the romantic relationship is less uh, manipulative <laughs> overtly than those in Rebecca's novella. But I think about the way that we all are kind of trying to manipulate each other when we're pursuing a relationship, mm -hmm. whether that's romantic or familial or friendship. Um, we want certain things from other people, whether we're conscious of that or not. And I think we're always trying to manipulate people in subtle ways uh, to get them to behave the way we want them to, to get them to relate to us in the way we want them to. Um, so I don't necessarily, I mean, I think manipulation definitely has like a negative connotation, of course. <laughs> um, but I think that we're all kind of doing that all the time. And I see that between Whimsy and between Rakesh and the story in less of a way where I don't really see Whimsy as being like victimized by that relationship, more so that they're both equally um, or <laughs> perhaps uh, similarly complicit in trying to manipulate one another into being uh, into filling a role that they need filled um, for which the other is not quite equipped. I, I love that description. And I think that the the notion of how to uh, how to negotiate desires when mm -hmm. when two people have very distinct desires for what they want out of someone especially in a romantic relationship mm -hmm. is is very present in both of your in both of your books and and handled quite differently i mean rebecca i think you, you introduced the idea of the lyric as this crucial but at least in contemporary terms, kind of a controversial speaking out of the self in poetry. And then you you seek to sort of bend it as a way to um, to try and differently understand the self as both separate from um, the desire for others to to manipulate, but also engaged in some of that manipulation. Could you talk a little bit about that? So I was definitely interested um, in kind of what Ann Carson writes in Eros Bittersweet, which is in the novella about lyric beginning as this gesture of, of reaching out and um, trying to grasp the other um, that will always be ungraspable, both in terms of de desire as part of the structure of desire, uh, but also in terms of language as part of the structure of language of not being able to um, make your linguistic meaning match up with your intention. So from the point of view of the subject of these poems, um, Charlotte is both kind of trying to create a self as well as experiencing its elusiveness or the fact that every self in the poem ends up being a persona or a fragment or a part. And as she reaches out in this address from this kind of already fractured subject position, then the act of grasping is that much more chaotic, one might say. And at the same time, um, despite kind of knowing about 
the structure of language and lyric that she's working with then, um, there's a part of her that sees it having real effects in the world and developing further desire, at least, to to make the poem do her will, um, to make someone love her, to make her someone coherent um, and specific. And in looking back on the history of verse after kind of living and grappling through those different inadequacies in the form, then I think it becomes the analysis or the embrace or the um, unraveling uh, of these complexities through more of what you kind of talked about is that old school, school literary criticism that does enable her to grasp a little bit more into what a self might look like in writing. Hmm. Very nicely said. Does that said. answer the uh, question? <laughs> yeah, very, oh, very much, very much. Um, and Shannon, you already, you, you anticipated my interest in dance in, in whimsy. <laughs> um, and I see dance as, as, as actually doing quite similar work to the, to the lyric in, in Rebecca's work as, as a form of, of trying to intentionally shape uh, one's relationship to others, but also desire to to understand one's own shape. Um, but it's mm -hmm. I think it's important that her attempt to share this kind of creative form of taking control of oneself is is sort of a failure uh, in in the context of her her school. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that? Well, well, part of that was just me imagining the way that Whimsy would be uh, kind of stumbling through relating to her students as a new teacher. So Whimsy is a first year, seventh grade teacher. I've been a high school and middle school teacher for about 10 years now. Um, so I was definitely thinking about um, my experience of being a new teacher and all of the absurdities and humor that comes from that <laughs> and the way that you really and at least this is my experience but I think it's probably the case for a lot of new teachers and and even just new adults in a, a new professional setting like you're really trying to shape how you come across in the workplace and prove that like you're an adult or you're right for this role that you've been hired to um, to do absolutely so, um, <laughs> I think for me I earlier in my teaching career, I was really trying to like hide a lot of myself and my strangeness or perceived strangeness. Like I, you know, didn't share with any of my um, students or colleagues that I was a writer for many years. And so I think like you, you know, naturally try to repress some parts of yourself in the workplace. Um, so I thought it would be uh, interesting and funny for whimsy to come forward and just be like, no, I'm going to get these seventh graders to do interpretive dance and they're going to love it as much as <laughs> and they're going to feel the empowerment that I felt doing interpretive dance in college when I think the reader can pretty much anticipate it's going to be a failure. Um, so... <laughs> I kind of, uh, I just thought that that would be a way to reflect how um, Whimsy is very misguided in trying to learn to be an adult and learn to relate to others in a way that's genuine, but often is not received in the way that she would like or, or anticipate. So 
of course, what you expect to happen happens where it's, yeah, not a whole lot of interest from students and some just find utter humiliation in their interpretive dance performances. And then there's the the group of girls who just kind of entirely yanks the creative yeah. notion of interpretive desire away from you and turns it into like contemporary hip hop or pop dance. Oh yeah. Cool girls gotta dominate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, which was unfortunately such a like uh, bad nostalgic uh, memory <laughs> for me of, of my own schooling. Um, education is actually really important to both of your your fictions. Uh, obviously, uh, Whimsy is is a young teacher trying to understand her relationship, uh, especially to the fragility of many of her students in mm. in comparison to her own fragility, mm. and and then. Rebecca Charlotte is a graduate student, but also a teacher. And and you both have many years of institutional schooling, I'm sure, for good and, and bad. <laughs> and you have both taught. Why did you want education to be a central component to your fictions? And how have some of your personal experiences as learners and teachers influenced that work? Um, I could take that question first. Sure. Um, uh, so when I set out to write Whimsy, it at first had a very different plot, but uh, the only thing that was really the same was that the main character was a teacher. And I remember like the first few lines that I wrote of the book, which are not in it anymore because they were really not very good, <laughs> but it was something like, this is a story about a teacher who doesn't sleep with their students, doesn't sell drugs, and like, hopefully you'll still find it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's um, basically part of what I was setting out to do. I think, you know, at the time I was living in Ann Arbor, um, where the University of Michigan is, and where, where I went for undergrad. Um, but I was friends with a lot of MFA students. And of course, they have like this very um, highly regarded MFA program there. It's a very literary town. And I felt such a uh, conflict between being a K-12 teacher and being a writer. And almost like, well, I mean, you know, in the greater culture too, um, being a teacher isn't quite the most highly respected job. Um, but I was really- well, these days, it's like apocalyptic. Yeah, it's like apocalyptic. Um, and I was just feeling so frustrated with the narratives that I saw of teachers, because I think there are a lot of really great books where the protagonist is a college professor, and um, they have a storyline that's really interesting um, that doesn't just revolve around um, a really uh, cartoonish portrayal of their job. Um, and I, I didn't see that so much in the other books that I read or shows, you know. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I was really just like, okay, I've written a few novels while not thinking that being a teacher was a worthy profession for a fictional character. And I kind of wanted to push against that and write a, a book about a teacher that um, felt more real to me. Mm, I love that. And Rebecca? Uh, so, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about actually uh, Shannon's uh, interpretive dance and whimsy and a way to kind of get at this question that, you know, we 
it like all of education is supposed to be a way to actually teach um, intellectual independence and critical thinking skills. But there's always also this um, socio-emotional aspect of it, where as a teacher, it's really difficult to separate what a text or practice means to you um, from that independence that you're trying to teach. And that when you fail to make your students understand things the way that you do, that it can be this um, great disappointment, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. So writing this... I was kind of at the tail end of my PhD program, and I think I had often felt myself um, kind of almost in the position of a detective in my seminars, where I had my own interpretation of text, but I sometimes felt like I was actually supposed to be figuring out what the professor thought. I remember during my field exams, just like in the months leading up to them, um, meeting with one member of my committee who kept telling me that I didn't understand Blanchot, no matter how many times I came with what I thought. I know who exact, exactly this is, and uh, that's, I, I know that's you do. very hysterical <laughs> to me, and I'm sorry for that experience for you. Um, but yeah, there was also kind of just this aspect of like, well, I this is what it means to me, and at some point you'll have to tell me what it means to you. Um, <laughs> but the, there, there is this tension between the, yeah, the ability to become an independent scholar and thinker um, as the student, but then as the teacher to really kind of just want people to um, find that same level of, il- of illumination and connection that you feel with the texts that matter most to you. And I think that I was at just really in a point of experiencing that and in confusion um, and feeling quite exhausted specifically with my dissertation. And I, but luckily I had just gotten this external fellowship. So I was like, oh, now, now no one will care what I do for a while. Um, <laughs> and I can think a little bit more about the creative practice that I've abandoned and what theory means to me and um, how these things come together to help me understand what writing and reading mean to me <laughs> when they had become quite repulsive in many ways. Mm-hmm. And this was um, my way of doing that. Um, and that is a yeah interesting thing about these institutional spaces that you can kind of reach these moments of exhaustion, but also these moments of um, real insight and excitement, and that finding the path to do that within the structures that exist can often be challenging. And you know, a lot of people get discarded along the way in academia because of that. Um, but you know, also at the K through twelve level, and um, so I hope that my book. It kind of like can invigorate a little bit of the the enjoyment of reading and thinking through for oneself outside of a uh, received structure or what a narrative or reading is supposed to look like. Mm. I'm I'm going to be talking about uh, your formation there of education as a tension between the need to uh, cultivate self-discovery and self-understanding and the desire to form someone's thoughts to match your own. I'm going to use that, I, I think, forever. I think that's a really <laughs> wonderful explanation of the, the the problem and perhaps the potential of institutional uh, education. And, and it's certainly one that has 
shaped my own learning and teaching career. Uh, the, the two of you are published by Long Day Press, which is in Chicago, an independent publisher of beautiful small format books. But you met through an experience with a different um, small publisher. Can you talk about your experiences with small presses and what is your relationship to reading and working with small presses more generally? I could start, Shannon. Um, yeah. yeah, so we we met through a different small press, which at the point in time when I got connected with them in 2017 was a actually a pretty big um, small press, considered really an up-and-comer in the scene. Um, and at the same time, unbeknownst to us, there were ongoing financial difficulties, but all, you know things that really kind of trace back to the publisher um, and his management of those difficulties alongside communication with authors at that point in time. And that's a reality of the small press world, that there's so much exciting work being done in it. And at the same time, it's usually being done um, without any money, very much by the bootstraps of whoever's running mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And the only kind of thing that you can go into working with a small press knowing is that you will also have to become kind of a bit entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial and by the bootstraps to mm -hmm. um, promote your work out there um, and be kind of in the in the marketplace, your own cheerleader. But then the other parts of it, like how does the press treat people? Do they get paid their royalties? Are they nice? Um, the, that's almost kind of like a whisper network in finding mm -hmm. that information out. And Shannon and I were both very lucky that the editors who were at that previous press and kind of going through some of that tumult um, with us ended up founding Long Bay Press. And then eventually we both put our books out with the editors um, who had initially been interested in them, but in another space. And I'm really happy about that and really grateful for the work that they do. Because when it comes to uh, form like the novella, which is so short, or a novel that novella that contains so many um, different genres like my own, even if a larger press does take that on, I sometimes think that they don't know what to do with it or what it is or how to market it. Um, mm. And, the, you know, in those cases, books might struggle to find their readership um, a bit more, even if the author is probably hopefully getting a better advance and their work translated into a couple languages. Um, but there is such a community of small press readers who are following the exciting work going in going on in the small press world that if you make yourself available to connect with them um there's i think a lot of excitement in that and it's been a really great experience for me um especially because i think a lot like a large part of my target target audience are like poets actually poets um who are more likely to be reading a variety of books that come out from small presses and university presses. Mm -hmm. Shannon? Yeah, I have really appreciated the small press experience because like Rebecca said, it, it feels like a really um, energetic community and uh, people have excitement for your work and each other's work in a way that I think with the big five or is it big four now um, publisher, <laughs> published books. It'll be the um, big one next year. Big one. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
maybe don't have that opportunity kind of feel like an underdog when you're part of a small press because you know that most of these indie publishers are run just by a handful of people who are doing it out of a labor of love and working really, really hard. Um, So I think that that speaks to the point that it's, you know, there's sort of this whisper network of um, what small presses are doing well and which ones aren't. And as I entered my first um, opportunity to publish with the publisher, I think you already named him curbside, right? (laughs) Um, It was, I didn't, I hadn't spoken to anybody who'd published with them, um, but I think if I were to give any advice to those who are interested in publishing with a smaller indie press, that they talk to authors because there's such a wide range of engagement when it comes to this type of publishing um, from on the end of the editors and publishers, I mean, um, you know, some really put a ton of work and love into it and really dedicate their time and their money and their energy to it, like Long Day Press, fantastic publisher, so happy to work with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then others I've heard horror stories and where the author really just feels kind of used and like they didn't get any of the support that they um, that they deserved and that they were hoping to get. So I think, you know, that community is both important in empowering writers um, who are navigating like small literary magazines and small presses. Um, but it's also important just to make sure that you're getting into a contract that will be will honor the time that you've already put into your book because um, it just it breaks my heart when I talk to people who've had bad experiences with publishers because they've put so much of their life, you know, usually years and all the years preceding it to work on their craft only for their book to come out with a with a whimper. Mm-hmm. Before we close, uh, I'm hoping you would both be willing to share some recommendations, perhaps from independent presses, but also broadly, what and who you're loving to read right now. Yeah, I always love to tout small press books. So one um, that's amazing um, is Nate Lippin's My Dead Book, which came out with Publication Studio in the US and Pilot Press in the UK. And that is a story of a gay man approaching 50 who's kind of in his apartment um, experiencing insomnia and these visitations of the ghost from his past, largely from the AIDS generation, which is kind of a counter to these narratives of it gets better um, and queer optimism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that recenters the importance of trauma and queer identity, but also identity more broadly. And that's also a short novel, which, as I've said, I love. (laughs) Uh, And another amazing book as Naomi Washer's Subjects We Left Out from Billy's Books, which is actually in some ways similar to the structure of my own novella. Hers is a novel, and it's a narrative of a translator who is translating um, the works of a French poet into English, And the poems are about this story of unconsummated longing. And as she gets further into the translation project, it unearths the memories of her own um, recent relationship with an Italian man and their um, 
flirtatious relationship, which never escalates beyond it, and the lingering feelings of um, longing that come out of it. So I think that it's thinking about romantic longing, but through the lens of uh, translation and making oneself um, understood by another person. So those are two amazing ones, and I could go on and on, um, but I'll let Shannon get in a few before I go too far. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you um, so much i also loved naomi washer's book um i loved rebecca's book and i i think yeah if you read both of those together i think it's just such an inspiring and ed- educational experience for a writer i meant to mention earlier when i was talking about small presses that um women by chloe caldwell was really an important book for me to read i read it um, kind of early in my writing career. And uh, I think that kind of got novellas in my consciousness and in particular small press novellas. Um, so I, I think that has a, a really, I should credit that book with how it helps um, the idea of me being able to write a novella take root. And that's from Short uh, Flight Long Drive press. Um, and they have really great books. Uh, some recent reads um, for me that I really loved were the novel Post Traumatic by Chantal V. Johnson. It was an incredible book. Um, you should interview her, Chris. <laughs> okay, um, I, I yeah. <laughs> you like this book. Um, the flash fiction collection Math for the Self-Crippling by Ursula Villarreal Mora. That was also a small press book and one that I think, you know, really shows how important small presses are and how unique the form of that book is as well. Also, she's, a short um, she's one of the most interesting and, and most wonderful sort of social media presences for books, I think. Oh, yes, I totally agree. There have been so many books that I've read um, because Ursula recommended them. <laughs> Me too. The books, yeah, yeah. The book that I'm reading right now, hell of a book. I think I heard about that from her and I'm like, okay, if Ursula likes it. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be good. So everyone should follow her online. Um, and then a, a po- poetry collection. Admittedly, I don't read a ton of poetry, but I really loved the collection Not I by Sebastian Castillo. And that was from Word West Press came out recently. So those were some that I really loved recently. Wonderful. And I'm glad to have that uh, poetry recommendation as well. These are fabulous. I'll make sure that they are linked to in uh, at our website, burnedbybooks.com, so that people can uh, reach out and, and grab some of these wonderful small press options. Um, thank you so much, Rebecca and Shannon, for such a great conversation about your work, the interaction of your work, and for so much more. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for having us, Chris. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Shannon and Rebecca for a wonderful conversation. Their recommended books are available for purchase at burnedbybooks.com, which has links to buy Whimsy and How to Adjust to the Dark from local indie bookstores. There you'll find all of our previous episodes and recommended books. Next week, I'll be talking with Rachel Krantz about her memoir, Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>